Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When we open up our Bibles and we look into the scriptures, we have a wonderful opportunity to see the testimony of our God. We can see how he interacted with people throughout the course of time. We can see the things that he did and the things that he said, and we can enjoy what he has accomplished through his interactions with humanity. Sometimes when we go into the scriptures, we will ask the Lord, speak to us, say something to me, show me what you would like to show me. I want to understand and I want to know you in a greater way. Sometimes when we look at the things that he had to say when he was speaking to people, sometimes we take the things that he had to say to them and we try to find ways of bringing it into our own lives. And you know, there are wonderful opportunities to apply the things that he has said in our lives today. But sometimes when we do that, it's very easy to forget what he was saying to the individuals back then. Sometimes it's easy to do that. Sometimes this can be an opportunity for error, though, that he may say something to us, he may not say something to us, but if we look into the scriptures with the expectation that he will speak to us and show us the relevance of what he had to say to some people, show us how that might be relevant to us, well, there may not be a relevance at the moment. There may not be an application in our lives right now. That may not be the case. This can be a significant obstacle sometimes because people will look into the scriptures with this expectation and if they don't get something, if there is no delivery to them personally, if there's no application in their lives right now, then they might feel a little disappointed. And I can certainly understand that if you expect him to show you something right now relevant to you personally today and he doesn't do that, then that should be a moment of disappointment. I can appreciate that. But what I would like you to consider is that it is more important first to understand what he was saying to the people that he was speaking to. I certainly do appreciate and I enjoy the moments when the Lord will take something that he has said to somebody else and reapply it in a new way in my life. I can certainly appreciate that. But I do not want to encourage you to pursue something like that at the expense of not understanding what he was saying, what he was intending to convey at the time that he was speaking. This is especially true when you consider the ministry of the Lord Jesus. When you look at the living God manifested in the flesh and you see the ministry that he was conducting during his time in Israel, when you look at the things that he did and the things that he said back then, and you try to take those things and apply those things in your life, if you try to take the words that he expressed and apply them in your life, 
there may be some opportunities, there may be some circumstances where this is not going to work out for you very well because of the intent. Now again, I really do believe, I believe that the Spirit of God can use what he has said in such a way today that he can apply what he said in your life in a new and in a real way. I do believe that. Don't get me wrong. What I'm intending to say is that for us to assume that he is always going to do that, I think, can be a false assumption. And unfortunately, what people tend to do is they tend to ignore what he did say to the people who he was speaking to. They tend to ignore that because they want something for them. And while there may be something for them, there may not be something for them. If you will consider what he said to those people back then, then you will never be disappointed. You will never be disappointed because he did say those things to those people and he did have purpose and intent. And what he said meant something unique to the individual's who he was speaking to. You know, it's very difficult to understand a lot of what Jesus said and a lot of what he did unless you understand the beliefs that the people had at that time. If you don't understand what the Pharisees taught, if you don't understand what the people believed at that time concerning the living God, the law, the Messiah, if you don't understand these things, then it can be very easy to misunderstand what Jesus said, or not understand really what he had to say at all. One of the significant opportunities for misunderstandings can be found in what people refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, there are many opportunities to miss what Jesus was saying. Because if you don't understand what the people believed, then you won't know what they were hearing. Because what he was saying and what they were hearing were sometimes two different things. But on other occasions, there was clear communication that was based on assumptions that are not readily available for us. And those assumptions were derived from the philosophies and from the religions of that time. And so I would like to spend some time talking about the Sermon on the Mount but not in the context of how might this apply to us today, not directly. I will speak of that indirectly. Instead, I would like to spend some time talking about the Sermon on the Mount from the point of view of the people who were hearing Jesus speak. What would they have heard him say? What would it have meant to them? In this way, there is no opportunity for confusion or misunderstanding or misinterpretation. And I believe that if you will understand this first, then when you consider other truths that might be revealed through this and how these things might be applied to you today, I believe that you will be able to consider these things in a much better context. So I'm going to spend some time going through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in order to do this, I need to talk about some other things first, just in order to give you a better foundation to prepare you for dealing with many of these issues that are presented in the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing I would like to do is to just talk about some of the practical realities of life. And if you understand these practical realities, I think you can appreciate the position that the people were in and why they would value a lot of the things that Jesus had to say. 
when we wake up in the morning or whenever we wake up, when we get up and we begin our day, it's normally very easy to recognize that we have some needs. We usually get hungry. We need some food. We might be cold or we might be hot, and so we might be looking for some ways to generate some energy so we can either cool ourselves down or warm ourselves up. We will recognize that we have some basic physical needs, some needs for food and clothing and shelter, things like that. And so what we tend to do is we tend to structure our days in such a way that we can meet the needs that we have in a physical sense. We will find work that we can do, we will do things for ourselves, we'll do things for other people in order to produce the things that we need so that we can survive. And if we are able to produce the things that we need to survive, then we can consume those things. And for the most part, people live their lives in this way where they are looking for opportunities to consume food, energy, things like that. But in order to get these things, they have to produce. And if your consumption is greater than your production, then somebody is going to have to make up the difference or you are going to do without. This is the way that most people live. We live on the basis of production and consumption. And if we are able to produce more than we consume, then we can save the difference for a time when we would decide to consume more than what we produce, things like that. This tends to be the focus of people's lives. Now, when we engage the world, we go out into the world to try and do whatever we need to do, and so we can consume whatever we want to consume. When we do that, we might engage in some work of some kind for an individual, and when we do that, we can expect some compensation for the labor that we put in in order to get whatever we expect to receive as compensation. We will do work for individuals, and they will give us something in return, and then we can take that and trade that for something else that we probably would like a little bit more, things like that. This is the focus of most people's lives. It has to do with production and consumption. Now, when people struggle with their production, when people have a hard time producing more than what they consume, then they can either do without or they can find somebody else to make up the difference. But sometimes it can be difficult to find someone who will just give you something that you would like to have. You might find it difficult to find an individual who was able to produce more than they consumed and can give you a little bit of the difference of what they were able to save. It can be difficult to do that, but when people do, when people are generous with what they have that is extra from what they were able to produce, when people are generous and they just simply give that to an individual without expecting anything in return, then we can call this a blessing. And there are many opportunities for people to bless other people, but sometimes it can be difficult to find people who have extra things that they are able to share with somebody else. And so what people will do is they will look for divine intervention. They will look to a God to make up the difference somehow, or maybe just give a little bit extra. They will look to a God to provide them with something that they had a hard time getting on their own, or they don't really want to get on their own, or they're completely unable to get on their own. But they know that they can't work for it, that God is not going to owe them that. They just 
call upon some divine presence of some kind in order to help them in their time of need. This is a very common experience for many people. And the expectation is, is that there will be a divine response. And when there is a divine response, then this divine response is a blessing. So from a fundamental point of view, from the point of view of just wanting to sustain life, just wanting to continue to live our lives, from that perspective, blessings are of great value. Of great value, especially if the divine, the living God, would provide us with these blessings. Because you know how it is when you ask somebody else to bless you. Sometimes they might have a little bit of an attitude concerning that. They might want something in return. They may think of it as a loan instead of a blessing. And so it can be very convenient if you have a God who will respond to you in this way. Now, this is how the living God established the nation of Israel. He established the nation of Israel by promising blessings. When he took the people out of slavery, out of Egypt, he brought them to the mountain of God. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them his law. He gave them the commandments. And if you read through the law, you will discover that he said that if the people would obey the commandments that he gave, he would bless them. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he gives a list of things, of ways that he would bless them. And these are exciting blessings. Things like, you will have plenty of flour in your kneading bowl. You will lend and not borrow. Things like that. I can appreciate those things. I can see the value in those kinds of blessings. But he also said that if you fail to live in obedience to his commandments, then you will be cursed. And if you are cursed, then what are you going to do? Well, you're going to have to try to find some way to start obeying God. That was what he said. And if you do that, then he will bless you in return and he will restore you. That was what he said to the nation of Israel. So he used this fundamental concept of blessings in order to establish the people. What were these blessings? These blessings were blessings for the flesh. He said nothing about if you will obey, you will know who I am. He said nothing about if you will obey, then I will meet the deepest needs of your heart. What he said was that if you will obey, I will meet the needs of your flesh. That was what he was offering. Now, of course, no one can live up to the expectations of the law, and so he has never had to deliver on any of the blessings. But this was incentive. This was a very important incentive. The blessings and the curses. Sometimes I'll speak of the law in the context of the carrot or the stick as the incentive to get people to live in obedience to his commandments. When people look at the New Testament and they look at the Gospels and they look at the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes people will look at the words of the Lord Jesus in the same way. They will look at the words of the Lord Jesus, especially in Matthew chapter 5, where he started his Sermon on the Mount, and he started it by saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he proceeds and gives a number of other statements concerning blessings. 
Sometimes we carry that over and people define their Christian life on the basis of trying to be blessed by God. And how would they know if they were blessed by God? Well, for the most part, what people do is they measure their lifestyles. They measure their lives. They look at the opportunities that they have for employment, or they look at the situations that they might have where they may be able to obtain something for less than what it would normally cost them if they were to get it at full price, things like that. People find all kinds of creative ways to justify their Christianity through the blessings in their flesh in a similar way that our God described to the Israelites how they would also be blessed if they were obedient. So what happens is is that people look at Christianity, and they look at their God as a new set of commandments that if you will just simply love your neighbor as yourself, things like that, then God will bless you now. He couldn't bless you before because there were just too many commandments. And so we just need to take a few of them, adopt those into our lives. His forgiveness will make up the difference, things like that. And then he will be merciful and he will bless our flesh. And people establish their relationship with their God. They look to him as though this is their relationship with him, as if their relationship is based on the carrot and the stick. That if they will live in the way that God wants them to live, then he will bless them. But if they fail, then he's going to beat them. It's the same philosophy of the carrot and the stick. In this case, it's the blessings or the beatings. That's how many people live their lives, especially when they become Christians. When they become believers in the Lord Jesus, they believe the gospel. They will study passages in the scriptures, such as the Sermon on the Mount, looking to these passages as if these are the instructions for you, so that you will live the Christian life. But the fact is that he was speaking to a group of people at that time. He was speaking to individuals at that time. He was not speaking to you unless you were alive back then, and I find that to be very unlikely. He was not talking to you. He was talking to them. And what they heard was something very different than what people are talking about today. It's not the same thing. And so I would really like to spend some time talking about what they heard back then. And focus on that, because I believe that if you will understand that, then if you hear what he is saying today, I think that you will find it much more meaningful. I really do. Now, what the people would have heard back then would be correlated. It would be in relationship to what they already believed. You see, this idea of blessings was certainly not new to them. They had heard this before. They were hearing this all the time. This was how the Pharisees would teach. This was the incentive to live a life like a Pharisee. The incentive was that if you will live in obedience to the law, you will be blessed. But this is described somewhat in reverse in the sense that first we're going to tell you that you have an opportunity to be blessed. Oh, but by the way, in order to be blessed, you're going to have to be obedient to God. So the blessings are the advertisement, they are the incentive, they are the bait, but then you get the switch, which is that you need to live a life of obedience to the Mosaic Law. 
and then they can proceed to teach you about Pharisaical Judaism, which was the way of life that you could live so that you would never go within the boundaries of possibly violating any of the laws of Moses. This was how the Pharisees taught. But when they presented blessings, when they presented those blessings, they presented the blessings that were found in the law. And what Jesus says is a little different. It's not quite the same. For him to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that was a very unusual thing to say, because what they were hearing, the people were hearing before Jesus, was blessed are those who are rich in spirit, not those who are poor in spirit. You need to be rich in spirit, rich in your understanding of what the Spirit has revealed. And so when Jesus says something that is different from what they were accustomed to, this would raise some new questions, some important questions. Now, the people knew that after the blessings were presented, you would then get the laws that you would have to live by. And sure enough, if you continue to read, you will see that Jesus speaks about the law. He says, I did not come to destroy the law. I did not come to abolish the law. In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, I want you to understand that they were expecting him to speak about the law. They were expecting him to do that. And the reason why is because that's what all the teachers, all the rabbis said after they told you about the blessings. They taught you the law. But when he gave different blessings, they should have made the assumption that he was going to present a different law. But he didn't. He said that he was in full support of the law that they already had. But then he proceeds to give some additional laws, some additional commands that are not found in the law of Moses. Where does that come from? Where does he get the liberty to do that? In order to understand this transition, you have to understand the teachings of the Pharisees, the instruction that the people had already received before Jesus came. What Jesus was doing was he was following the same pattern that the Pharisees were following. And that was you start with Moses, but then you need some other laws in your life to ensure that you don't come within the boundaries of violating any of the laws of Moses. So when Jesus adds some additional laws to the laws of Moses, when he says that your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, for example, and he presents some new laws, he's doing so following the same model, the same pattern that the Pharisees had already presented to the people. He's using that in order to drive them to a certain point, to bring them to a certain place. And that was to see that they had no hope whatsoever of entering the kingdom of heaven. And why would he do that? Why would he drive an individual to the point of absolute despair? He would do that so that they would understand their need for his forgiveness. So when Jesus was teaching the people using the Pharisaical model, 
He was not teaching the people using the Pharisaical model so that they could find a way to achieve success. This was not about success. This was not about making sure that you know how to repent from your sins and be obedient to God. That was not what he was doing. That was what the Pharisees, the rabbis, the scribes were doing. That was what they were doing. What Jesus was doing was teaching them in such a way that they would reach failure, that they would eventually fail, that they would not succeed in their pursuit of obedience. They would never obtain the blessings of God through their obedience to the law. He taught them in such a way that it would lead them to the point of failure. It would lead them to the point of despair, of desperation, so that they would again see that they would have a need for the forgiveness of God, for the mercy of God. And then, then they would be ready for the new covenant. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching the people how to be obedient so they would never have a need for the forgiveness of God. They would never have a need for the mercy of God. If the people believed the Pharisees, if they followed the teachings of the Pharisees, they would never have a need for a Messiah. They would never have a need for the new covenant. So Jesus had to bring him to the point of understanding their need. And he uses the model of the Pharisees. He expands on that to drive them to the point of despair. If they will only be true to what he teaches, if they will only be devoted and committed to what Jesus teaches, then, only then, will they be driven to the point where he can present to them what he came to truly give, which was not what he was saying at this time. It was what he was going to say in the future, in accordance with the new covenant, that he would provide forgiveness. He would provide mercy. He would provide the restoration of, of the Holy Spirit, so that through the restoration of the Holy Spirit, they could be resurrected and they could be filled by Him so that they would be rich in spirit through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus was accomplishing, and I will proceed with this in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net